Greetings, and welcome to Blue Stocking, the podcast for people who love to learn, but don't always have time to study. I'm your host, Rory Roberts. Today we're going to be talking about a short story collection by Emma Donahue, one of my favorite writers, and there's a little bit of a meandering pathway that I got to this particular episode because originally I was planning on doing a episode about an episode about the secret history of Wonder Woman which I am still working on I'm I'm digging my way through that book but um after seeing the film version of The Glass Castle the other day with my parents I was really inspired uh and golly gee Greetings and welcome to Blue Stocking, the podcast for people who love to learn but don't always have time to study. I'm your host, Rory Roberts, and I wanted to start out this episode talking a little bit about the film adaptation of The Glass Castle by Jeanette Walls. I went to see the film with my lovely parents, and it was beautiful and wonderfully done. I thought Brie Larson was an amazing Jeanette Walls, Woody Harrelson, Naomi Watts, they, everyone did such a good job. And more on that later, but a really funny incident that happened as we were leaving the cinema, my dad turns to my mom and me and says, you know, I really liked it, but I kept waiting for the story about her father and the squirrel to come up. And I was really sad when it didn't. Now, this gave mom and me a case of the giggles because there is no squirrel story in The Glass Castle. The story he was thinking of is from Ginny Lawson's book, Let's Pretend This Never Happened, in which her father, a taxidermy hobbyist, um, comes into her room one night with a magic talking squirrel living in a Ritz cracker box that has this whole interaction with the girls. It is hilarious and wrong and right on on so many levels. If you haven't read Ginny Lawson yet, I highly encourage you to check her out. You can find a lot of her writings on her blog, The Blogess, links will be available in the show notes. Um, But also, I still highly recommend Let's Pretend This Never Happened and Furiously Happy. Both of those are memoirs by her. And she just has such a unique and charming, quirky voice. I cannot recommend her highly enough. So I, I just love that story. I think it's hilarious that my dad got those two particular authors mixed up. And the the movie really was so enjoyable. And I thought Brie Larson did such a good job. And it inspired me in this episode of Blue Stocking, because I was thinking about the first time that I saw Miss Larson perform was in Another adaptation of a book that I love, Room by Emma Donahue, which if you have not checked that book out, again, I 
I feel like I recommend books on this podcast a lot. But uh, Room is a story told from the perspective of a young boy who has lived his entire life in a, I think it's a 10 by 10 foot shed. Um, His mother was kidnapped as a teenager and uh, gave birth to him in the shed. And it the the story is just amazing and the way that Miss Donahue lays out the story in this particular character's voice is so well done so riveting and really unlike anything that I've read before or since I love Emma Donahue um my first inner my first experience with her writing was a, a historical fiction novel called Slammerkin. Um, very good. She has another one called Life Mask uh, that I really like. But I also was going to share a couple of short stories from a collection called The Woman Who Gave Birth to Rabbits. And these are all stories that are inspired by actual events in history. Um, it's incredibly fascinating. I'm going to read you two that stuck with me the most. Um, the first is the title story, The Last Rabbit. Here we go. We were at home in Godalming, though some call it Godly Man, and I can't tell which is right. I say it the same way my mother said it. I was pregnant again and cutting up a rabbit for our dinner. I don't know what sort of whim took hold of me to give a scare to my husband, that is, Joshua Toft. When he came in from his day's work at Will Parson the Stockingers, I leant on the stool and huffed like a bellows. "'Tis my time come early, Joshua,' I told him. Now, he was all set to run for his sister, but I reached up and grabbed hold of his shoulders and bore down with a great groan that must have woken the children behind the wall. Then I reached under my skirt, and what did I pull out but the skinned rabbit? with the dust of the floor stuck to it in places. Joshua staggered back till his back hit the wall. I thought he might spew up his breakfast. Then I took pity on the man and started to laugh. I laughed more than I had in many a year. We amused ourselves very much with the talking of it till we went to bed. Joshua said I was a clever one and make no mistake. When his sister came in the day after to borrow a drop of milk, we told her all about it and she laughed very hearty too. She is a midwife, like her mother, and has often said no man could bear what women must. I miscarried of that baby some weeks after, while I was shoveling dung on the common. It was just as well, Joshua said, as in these times we were hard put it put to it to feed the two we had got already. The cloth trade was gone quite slack, and Joshua had no work nor any prospects. Mary, my sister, my sister Toft, Joshua's sister, that is, said to me, Look at that rabbit. She and I were out in the hop field off of the Ockford Road, weeding at tuppence a day. I was still bleeding, but stronger in myself. There was a fat rabbit watching us. Too far off to catch, I said. Mind that trick you played on poor Joshua, though. I straightened up and smiled a little. Think how it would be if it was true, she said. If you was the first woman in the world to give birth to a rabbit, wouldn't that be a fine thing? She had let her trowel fall on the clods. If it was true, Mary, would you not soon be famous? Would people not pay to see you? We would all be in the way of getting a very good livelihood and not have to scratch it out of the ground. 
My husband's sister is a good woman, but given to mad notions. How could it be true, though, I said, bending to the weeds again. Her eyes were shining now. Weren't there a child born a few years back with dog's feet because the woman was frighted by a dog in her sixth month, and another only last year born with all its organs on the outside that I myself paid a penny for a look of? I tried to speak, but there was no stopping her. And if who can tell what's true and what's not in these times, Mary, why then mayn't this rabbit story be as true as anything else? I do not think as quick as my sister toffed, but I come to the point in the end. I'll not go round to fairs, but, I told her. No need, no need, she said, picking up her trowel again. The folks will come to you. It was said of Mr. Howard, the man midwife, that he'd drop his breeches in the high street of Guildford if it would increase his fame. Before he put his hand up my petticoat to see I was big enough for the trick we were planning, I sent the children to stand outside, though it was raining. The doctor's hands were as cold as carrots, but Joshua bade me hold still. Mr. Howard said it was all to the good that I still bled off and on after miscarrying and had a drop of milk in my breasts. It would be more lifelike that way. If all went well and I won some fame, he said, the king might give me a pension in the end. Now, I couldn't see why I'd get a pension for bringing forth rabbits when the country was full of them already, but Mr. Howard was an educated man. Joshua got some dead rabbits from Ned Coston and some from Mary Peto, and some from John Sweetapple, the Quaker, all at threepence a head, no more than three from anyone so as not to cause wonder. From Dick Stegman, the weaver, he got a very small gray one at tuppence. We kept them piled up in the cool of the cellar. I caught our girl playing with one and smacked her legs. I wiped a space on our table for Mr. Howard's paper and ink and pen. The letters he composed were full of grand words. The woman Mary Toft has just now given birth to five preternatural rabbits, all dead, a fact of which there is hitherto no instance in nature. He pickled them in my sister Toft's jelly jars, numbered one, two, three, four, five, just as they were supposed to have come out of my womb. All I had to do was produce one more out of my body in front of a crowd of London doctors, and they would all believe in it. "'Stupidity and knavery, that's what we can rely on,' said Mr. Howard, wiping his hands on a rag. But nobody came for all his letters. After a week, Mr. Howard ran over from the inn with a notion that he would teach me to make my belly jump as if live creatures were sporting in it, which would be all the more impressive. Our children thought it was a great game. Mr. Howard sent off more letters.' The woman Mary Tuft has just now given birth to three more rabbits, one of which leaped in her body for all to see for eighteen hours before it died and came out, which was a great satisfaction to the curious. But the weeks went by, and still nobody came to see me. When Mr. Howard knocked on our door with a long face, I thought the game was over, and I was not sorry neither, though he might have given me a shilling for my trouble. But instead, he said I must go in his chase to Guildford, which would be more convenient for him to carry on the scheme. At this, I began to be afraid, but Joshua got out of bed and said I must go. His brother's wife could come in and see to the children, as she had none left of her own. "'What sport?' said my sister Toft, who was to come with me as my nurse. Mr. Howard kept writing letters all the way, though the ruts splashed ink on his lace cuff. There are three more rabbits come out of the woman Mary Toff's body, the sum being eleven, all which may be seen in jars at Guildford by any person of distinction who likes. 
while he was resting his hand, I asked him, How many rabbits, sir, could one woman of middling size be supposed to have in her body? But he said there were only small ones, and eleven was a good number. I lay on the bed in Guildford and groaned and made my stomach go in and out so the sheets moved, just as I was instructed. I had to keep my eyes shut so as not to laugh. Some folks came in to see me at last. One pointed and said she could see the shape of a rabbit's paw, but her husband said it was clearly a tail. Others only stared, and one woman said it was a fraud and spat on the floor. Mr. Howard wouldn't charge any of them so much as a farthing. Patience, he told my sister Toft. Our sights are set higher. Joshua came to Guildford on Nat Tucker's cart one day. He told me I was a good woman, then lifted the lid of his basket a crack so I could smell the fresh rabbits he had brought. "'Is it not a great expense?' I said in his ear, "'when we could be feeding them to our children.' But he shook his head, lightsome as ever, and said soon we would have the king's coin and dine on venison. The morning I heard the jingle of a gentleman's carriage out in the courtyard, I felt so cold in my bones that I would have run all the way home to Godalming if Mr. Howard had let me out the door. I was to look weary and say little. That was easy. I kept my stays on, but loosened.' The visitor was a foreign gentleman, a Mr. St. Andre, surgeon to the king himself. He felt my belly and remarked that it was barely swollen. Then he reached into my dress and squeezed my nipples to see what would come out. Mr. Howard ran back from the inn at dinner time with sauce down his neckerchief and told me not to fret. St. Andre is no man midwife, Mary. The only females he's seen close up are dead ones. At that I started to shudder, but my sister Toff told me to give over my nonsense. That afternoon I gave birth to my first rabbit, which was supposed to be my twelfth. The first thing was, Mr. St. Andre rolled up his flowing cuff and put his hand into me to be sure there was nothing there. He turned his face from me and stared at the wall. After I had moaned and shifted about a while, Mr. Howard walked me up and down the room. In the darkest corner he sat me down on a stool opposite his and squeezed my legs between his own. Mr. St. Andre called for a light, but my sister Toft cried out that it would hurt my eyes. All this time I kept up my panting and wailing. Mr. Howard took my hands in his and squeezed them. He leaned his head against mine. Then he pushed me back all at once as if the creatures were leaping inside me, so my stool almost toppled. Mr. St. Andre came closer, but Mr. Howard told him sharply to sit down again, so an unfamiliar face would not disturb the woman at her moment of crisis. Now I could feel Mr. Howard reaching under my skirt in the shadows and taking the limp rabbit from my pocket that dangled inside my hoop. He kept talking as if to soothe me while he nudged my legs apart and pushed the creature into me. I slid forward on my stool to help him. Tears were falling down into my stays. It felt like cold cheese, till a little bone scraped me. Then Mr. Howard had me walk about the room again to bring on the berth. I kept my steps small so it would not, it, so it would not slide out. Mr. St. Andre's eyes were on me no matter which way I turned, and I felt like a tumbler who has used up all her tricks. I tried to remember what it was like the times my real children were born. I leaned on the back of a chair, squalling and roaring and twisting my body from side to side. I told Mr. Howard I thought I might be ready, but he frowned and had me lay down on the bed for another while. My sister Toft wiped my face with vinegar. The two doctors passed the time by means of jokes— when Mr. Howard told a good one about a sow, I couldn't help but join in the laughing. Mr. St. Andre looked at me oddly, and I shut my mouth. "'Ah, uh, women of Mary's station are hardly as beasts, sir,' Mr. Howard told him. "'They don't recall a hurt when it's over.' 
At that I began to roar again, as if the pains were doubled. The doctors ran to the bed. I pushed and pushed, so my eyes bulged. I could feel the mangled rabbit beginning to slide out. "'There,' said Mr. Howard. "'Can't you hear its little bones crack?' The men listening listened, not meeting each other's eyes. Mr. St. Andre shook back his three rows of lace to the elbow before he reached into me. The rabbit came out on the first tug. It lay in his hand, the skin hanging loose. We all stared at it. My sister Toft muttered something like a prayer. It was dry and bloodless. It didn't look much like a rabbit. In the cases of several of the others also, Mr. Howard said very fast, the pubic bone crushed the fetus and the skin was pulled off in its passage through the os uteri. Mr. St. Andre's wig had slipped sideways. He adjusted it and wrote everything down in his little memorandum book. Prompted by Mr. Howard, I told him how my sister Toft and I had been weeding in the fields one day, and I saw rabbits and had a great desire for them, and tried to catch them for my pot, but could not, and that night dreamed I had rabbits in my lap. And indeed, by now, it was true, I did dream of rabbits most nights. "'What is the pain like, Mrs. Toft?' he asked. I thought back to the birth of my boy two years past. "'As if very coarse brown paper is tearing inside me, sir.' He kept feeling my pulse, looking at my tongue, even examining the water in my pot for stains. He did all this without ever saying if he believed a word of our story. He took three of the pickled rabbits away with him, to dissect in front of the king. I heard Mr. Howard standing by the carriage, reminding Mr. St. Andre to tell the king what pains he, Mr. Howard, had taken with this poor woman, and how he did not debar her from eating anything she fancied, no matter what it cost. And it was true, I supposed, that when there were no visitors I was free as any woman to sit by the fire and eat salt beef and drink strong beer as good as the doctor himself. The one thing I might not do was go home to my children, though I didn't trust my husband's relative to feed them. Mr. Howard shouted that he had staked his whole reputation on that magical womb of mine, and I was to get back to bed. In the days after, a Mr. D'Antony came down from London, and a Mr. Ehlers, and a Mr. Molyneux, and a Mr. Brand, and other doctors whose names I forgot as soon as I heard them. They all carried three-cornered hats that would never fit over their, wig their wigs. There was much nodding and bowing to each other, but anyone could have guessed that they were not friends. They watched me like owls. I am not a handsome woman. All my features are bigger than they need to be for a body so small. But these gentlemen looked at me as if I was made of gold, and by now I was so brazen I could look right back. One wiped his hand on his satin breeches and said he had discovered an enormous great tumor in the woman's, meaning my, stomach. But Mr. Howard informed him that it was simply the neck of the womb. He didn't like that, to have his ignorance made a show of. The births we performed late in the afternoon, when it was too dark to see clearly, but not so dark that the candles had been brought in. Mr. Ehlers pulled out the fifteenth rabbit like a child digging for treasure. "'Did I hurt you?' he asked. "'Yes, sir.' And he wrote it down in his book and gave me a guinea for my misfortunes. Mr. Howard laughed later and said he'd wager I'd never got a guinea for a rabbit before. But his voice was high in his throat, and his hands were restless. I could tell he was fretting. The visitors would not deny this rabbit miracle, nor swear to it. 
Two of the doctors spoke foreign gibberish, the others only hummed and hawed, and refused to make so bold, and could not positively say, and deferred to their learned friends' opinions. The day I produced my eighteenth rabbit, I suddenly saw what my sister Toft had meant, when she told me how impossibilities might as easily be believed as not. I was sore inside from strainings and pokings, and bled more than I had before. I couldn't sleep at night for visions of fields full of rabbits serving me one for dinner, and I spat it out. She complained that her larder was choked with rabbits, and the same throughout the country, as no one was willing to eat what might have come from between a woman's, a woman's legs. My sister Toft roared laughing and told me I was famous. I couldn't laugh. Did I know by then that our luck was running dry? All I remember is that when the maid announced Sir Richard Manningham the next day, the first sight of him filled me with dread. He was a man midwife, they said, who knew more about childbirth than anyone living. The os uteri is so tightly shut, he murmured as he pulled his smooth hand out of me, that it would not admit so much as a bodkin. I shrank from him. Sir Richard pointed out that my belly was flat and said the leaping motion was merely a muscular spasm. I lay still, panting. I knew his dark eyes could see right through me. My sister Toft gave me a sneezing powder to dislodge the rabbit, she said. I sneezed till my nose bled. Sir Richard lent me a handkerchief. I started to cry. Why do you weep? Sir Richard asked me, not unkindly. My sister Toft told him it was no wonder the poor woman cried when he had as good as called her a liar in front of the whole company. The room grew hotter. Sweat ran down my sides. The air was thick with breathing. I asked for a window to be opened, but Mr. Howard said night air would be fatal in my condition. Instead, he let me have some more beer. I began to hate him. I tried to remember if childbirth itself was as bad as this mockery of it. With my last boy, I was three days in labor, but at least I knew there was a real child to bring forth, not like this hollowness, this straining over nothing. The doctors spent hours in the inn. I could hear their quarrel from across the road. The end of it was, I had to go to London with Sir Richard Manningham. I never thought of going to London before. Folks said it was full of rogues that'd steal the skin off your feet. But I was not given a choice. So I took my guinea that Mr. Ehlers gave me, though Joshua would have rathered I left it at home, and my sister Toff said I should not forget that she was entitled to her cut of the guinea and the pension too after I met the king. I was terrified when I heard that Mr. Howard was not to come to London with myself and my sister Toft and Sir Richard, but he did lean in the carriage window and tell me my reward could not be far off. He seemed so full of the story now he almost believed it. We lodged at a sort of bathhouse in Leicester Fields. I was locked in my room at all times and kept without my shoes and nursed by a stranger with a flat face. When I asked for my sister Toft, Sir Richard said she was kept downstairs, and there she must stay. One might have thought Sir Richard was my father, or my lover, so tirelessly did he sit up all night watching over me and writing down everything I said or did. I complained of the most peculiar pains. I fell into fits. My acting grew more desperate, like a strolling player trying to be heard over a crowd. I curled up my fingers, rolled my eyes, and whined like something dying in a trap. All the time my mind was sniffing out ways of getting hold of a rabbit. Just one more, that's all I needed. 
just a part of one even, as little as a furry foot for luck. One day when Sir Richard had stepped out for a moment's air, the porter came in with some mutton for my dinner. I talked sweetly to him and mentioned I had an aversion to mutton and begged him to tell my sister Toft in the kitchen to send up a rabbit for my dinner. The porter let out a great guffaw and asked what he would get for it. I had no change, so I had to give him my guinea. Sir Richard stalked in later. I could tell by his face the porter had betrayed me to him. I sobbed. I said, I had such a strange craving to eat rabbit, sir, because I am big with one still. He was staring at me, and I could not tell if it was with triumph or disappointment. You are big with nothing but lies, he said very low. He examined me once more. His hands on my legs were so familiar they almost felt safe. But then he said to me, Mary Toft, I have prevailed upon the justice not to send you to prison yet, but to keep you in custody here until the full, full story emerges that we can only see the tip of now. I groaned and clawed at the bed like a woman in the throes of death. Sir Richard's eyes were sad. I realized then that for all his suspicions, he half wanted to be wrong. I would have been so glad to have brought out one last rabbit to let it fall like a holy miracle into his fine hands. Towards evening, I fell into a real fit and lost all consciousness of who or where I was. When I woke up, my face was as hot as a coal, and there were cramps in my belly like the grip of fingernails. My lies had infected me, I supposed. My counterfeit pains had come true. Sir Richard came in, then, with a case under his arm. "'I have a fever,' I told him, very hoarsely. He ignored that. He opened his case so I could see what was inside.' There was a scissors, forceps, a hook, a crochet, a small noose, a saw, and various knives with other instruments I didn't know the names of. The points and blades caught the firelight. I thought I was going to vomit. I have come to the conclusion, Mary Toft, that you are a fraud, Sir Richard spoke in a soft voice, almost gentle. Either you make a full confession of how you have imposed upon the whole medical establishment of England with your motions and your pains, in which case I will attempt to have your sentence reduced, or else I must here and now put you to a painful experiment to see how you are made different from other women that you have managed to convey into your uterus what should not be there. The fever had dried up my voice. It came out as a croak. "'Sir, for mercy's sake, give me one more night.' He rubbed his eyes wearily. He spoke more like an ordinary man. "'What, girl, can the conjurer at every fair bring a rabbit out of a hat, and you cannot produce one more from between your legs when you claim to have brought forth so many already?' I clutched my belly. "'It is there, sir. I feel it stir and press, but it can't find its way out.' and then I put my face in my hands, and it felt like a burning thing. Sir, I said, I won't stay here any longer. I'd sooner hang myself. Sir Richard said he would give me one more hour to consider the state of my soul. Then he locked the door on me. But for a month I had been nothing but a body. Though I believed that every body had a soul, as my mother taught me, I had no idea where it might reside. How could there be anything hiding in me that had not been turned inside out already? The crack of the bolts. Not Sir Richard, but the unsmiling nurse with a leg of chicken for my supper.
I gave her one great shove and ran past her, out the door and down one corridor and then another. My breath ran out soon enough. My head hammered like an army. I had to stop and lean against a wall for weakness. I hadn't my guinea any more, I remembered, nor my shoes even. What would become of me? I heard laughter from one of the chambers. The door was open a crack and I peered in. There was a sofa and a girl lying on it with her skirts up to her shoulders and an old man kneeling between her legs, his back heaving as he thrust. Now I knew what kind of a place this so-called bathhouse was. I couldn't help but watch for a moment. I never saw a man and a woman do what they are born to do except for Joshua and myself, and that I never looked at from outside. The girl's eyes were shut. I could tell she was used to it. It came to me, then, that it is the way of the world for a woman's legs to be open, whether for beginning or bearing or the finding out of secrets. I looked up the corridor, then down. I knew I would never find the way out on my own. So I turned and walked back to the room where Sir Richard was waiting for my story. A note from the author. Dr. Howard was charged with conspiracy, and Mary Toft was sent to the Bridewell jail as a notorious and vile cheat. But she was released after a few months, probably to save the prominent Londoners taken in by the hoax from further embarrassment. Back in Godalming with her husband, Mary had another baby in 1728, the first child after her pretended rabbit breeding, according to the parish register, and was occasionally shown off as a novelty at local dinners. In 1740, she was charged with and acquitted of receiving stolen fowl, and she lived to the age of 60. If you found the story of Mary Toft interesting, I believe there is an episode of Sawbones about her, which uh, Sawbones is a marital tour of misguided medicine. It's a comedy podcast that's pretty funny. There's also, um, regarding childbirth, there's an episode of The Dollop, episode 90, Childbirth in America, which is very fascinating, but also quite disturbing, and I would not recommend it for uh, just anyone. I... Quick note, I thought about going back and editing out all of my mistakes in today's episode, but uh, you know what? I'm just gonna leave it because I think it's kind of funny, and hopefully next time I'll be a little more together with it, but also maybe this will be entertaining for you. How much, uh, (laughs) how much I'm messing up. All right. Our next story is also from the collection by Emma Donahue. This story is titled Cured. P.F., age 21, single, admitted into the London Surgical Home, January 7th, 1861. My brother brought me in. He's a peeler. I mean, a policeman. Do you keep house for him, Miss F.? The doctor crossed his legs, and his wing chair gave a luxurious creak. The walls of his office glowed with books. The carpet was thick under her scuffed boots. She wanted to sink down onto it and sleep. The pain kept her always tired these days. Yes, well, no. I used to be a cook with a very good family, you see, Dr. Brown. He smiled at her a little reprovingly. Mister. Oh, that's right, you said. Pardon me. 
I mean Mr. Baker Brown, sir. The doctor's face was smooth-shaven, no whiskers even. He had the pink glow of a best-quality pork sausage, she thought, and almost laughed at the thought. Then she remembered the question. When my back got so bad, I could hardly stay on with that family, could I? So my young brother, he's always been good to me. Our parents have gone to their reward, so there's only us now. My brother said he'd take me in till I was well again. But you have not been well for a long time now, I believe. Mr. Baker Brown's eyes were tender, respectful. No, sir, she said, letting out her breath and feeling that familiar throb start up again in the small of her back. I've been to the free hospitals, and they can't do a thing for me. One doctor said I—what was it, he said. According to him, he said I showed no signs of organic disease, only the normal aches and pains of life. Her voice was getting slightly shrill, so she covered her mouth with her hand. Mr. Baker Brown tutted faintly. So in the end, not that he can afford it very easy, but my brother has some savings put aside, and he said he'd pay for me to come to this special new clinic for female health, seeing as you're said to be the ne plus ultra. Whatever that meant. The borrowed phrase felt foolish in her mouth. My brother knows nothing of medicine, of course, sir, but he knows what he's heard. One of the sergeants at the station has an uncle that has a wife that came to you with a weakness of the chest last year, sir. He, the uncle, I mean, says he knows nothing about your methods except that they work, and his wife is a changed woman. She was aware she was talking too much. She couldn't seem to stop. And in the waiting room, she jerked her head over her shoulder and felt the familiar twinge. I heard one lady tell another that you're the wisest man in Christendom when it comes to women's sufferings. Baker Brown smiled with wry modesty. To speak frankly, Miss F., I see myself, being both a doctor and a gentleman, as a protector of womankind. Like the knights in the old tales? she asked, fascinated. A little nod. It appears that destiny has called me to rescue the softer sex from the general ignorance of their friends and advisers. I am a pioneer, so to speak, in a wholly new branch of the healing sciences, but I must do myself the justice to admit that my efforts have already met with a considerable amount, considerable amount of success. So my brother heard, she murmured, her eyes tracing the gold-backed spines that filled the nearest bookcase. Well, said Mr. Baker Brown decisively, together we must ensure that his generosity is well repaid. Together? Miss F. spoke a little hoarsely. Indeed. He uncrossed his legs and leaned forward, all at once with his hands joined. She heard the slippery leather of his chair squeak. For the truth of the matter is that I can only cure a patient who truly wishes to get well. Her breath was released like a flame. Oh, I do. I do indeed, sir. He gave her his hand. I could tell that about you, Miss F., the moment you were shown into this office. She got to her feet slowly. Her lips pursed against the sudden pain. There will be wasting of the face and muscles generally, the skin sometimes dry and harsh, at other times cold and clammy. The pupil will sometimes firmly be contracted, but generally much dilated. There will be quivering of the eyelids and an inability to look one straight in the face. The examining room was painted in dazzling white. The nurse had taken her behind a screen and changed her street costume for a loose white nightgown. Now she lay on a padded leather table and stared into the bright eye of the lamp. When the doctor came in, his manner was brisker and more animated. He carried a notebook and a fountain pen. Where exactly is the pain at this moment, Miss F.? 
I don't know that I can rightly say, sir. About at the middle of my back, perhaps? It's not so very bad when I'm lying flat like this, you see, just a stiffness and a heaviness, really, but dreadful when I try to walk or lift anything. And also when you rise from a chair, I have observed. That's right, she said, suddenly grateful to the point of tears. That's when it pierces right through me like a sword. At least that's what I imagine, though I've never gone into battle. <laughs> she gave a nervous little laugh. Mercifully not, Miss F. Brave as woman may be in the age of Victoria, she is still exempt from that particular patriotic duty. As he said that, he took her by the wrist. Miss F. looked at the wall. She couldn't remember this ever happening to her before, except with a friend of her brother's at a party once, who'd taken her hand when everyone was admiring the tableau of Britannia's subjects pay her tribute. Mr. Baker Brown was left-handed, she noticed, but not at all awkward. He pressed her wrist a little harder and stared down at the fob he held in his other hand. She felt thrilled, comforted. "'Your pulse is regular,' he murmured, "'but a little quick for my liking.' "'I've always been sturdy, till two years back,' she assured him. "'I can tell you exactly when the damage was done. "'I was sugaring caraway seeds for Christmas on the mistress's orders, "'and the boy was nowhere to be found, "'so I had to lift the heavy kettle of syrup off the fire myself, "'and I felt something rip in my back. "'I said it to her the minute she came in, "'the lady I worked for, I mean, "'but she said it was nonsense, as bags can't rip.' "'Mr. Baker Brown was jotting something in his notebook.' "'Until I've examined you fully, I cannot make any firm pronouncements,' he murmured. "'But I can tell you now, Miss F.' His warm eyes suddenly rose to meet hers. "'That it is generally impossible for the non-medical to penetrate into the root of their condition.' "'Oh. The incident you describe may have revealed your disease rather than caused it.' "'I see,' she said again, and blinked up at him. "'I was sure that was it—the sugar syrup, I mean, sir.' My brother said I didn't ought to work for a lady who'd treat me that way. Your brother's natural concern for you, and here the doctor flashed her another of his smiles, leads him to fancy that he can form an opinion on medical matters. Are you ever constipated, Miss F? Y yes, at times, I suppose, she said, startled. Does it hurt to defecate at those times? I, I suppose so. As Baker Brown began to press lightly on her stomach, she turned her face to the wall again. Any pain now? Uh, no, sir. He touched her face and she flinched. Skin moist and warm. He commented under his breath as he wrote it down, and she smiled a little, though she couldn't have said why. Then he leaned down, and Miss F. thought for a moment that he had lost his mind, that he meant to kiss her. She went stiff from head to toe. "'Breath inoffensive,' the doctor murmured, straightening up. "'And now, if you would be so good as to let me see your tongue.' "'She put it out, but only a little. "'She couldn't stick out her tongue at a gentleman. "'He felt the tip of it, put his index finger in her mouth, and pressed down, "'fingered her gums all over. "'Her eyes swam, she blinked hard. "'No one had ever touched her that way before in her, inside her mouth. "'She kept her tongue very still, "'and memorized the smooth, cool surface of the doctor's finger.' His eyes seemed to narrow a little now, as her brothers did sometimes when he spoke of gathering clues, tracking down a thief. "'Do you suffer from giddiness, Miss F?' "'Occasionally, on first getting up in the morning,' she said. "'Headache? If the day is hot, when I was a cook I did, my cap was too tight. "'Do you perspire freely?' "'Sometimes,' she admitted, looking away. 
That was a nasty question. And your menstrual periods, are they irregular? She felt the blush flood up from her collarbones. I don't know, she faltered. Maybe? Sometimes? Do you suffer from them at more or less the same point in each month? More or less? Is the flow excessive? Excessive, she repeated in her head. What was the definition of excess? Sometimes? Do they last as many as four days? Five or six, usually, she confessed. Mr. Baker Brown shook his head as if that was a bad, bad sign. Then he went to the end of the table. He put his warm hands on her ankles and pressed them apart. She clamped her knees together. I beg your pardon, Miss F., and I respect your delicacy, but this is necessary for me to complete my examination. She squeezed her eyes shut and let him part her legs. She started counting from one to a hundred, but she only got to eleven. She wondered why he was standing there peering down at her and what he was looking for. She thought perhaps it was almost over, and then he touched her somewhere. It was not a part she had a name for, or not one that could be said aloud. She writhed a little. She told herself she need not be embarrassed. This was no ordinary man but a doctor. No ordinary doctor but the famous Mr. Baker Brown, who understood women as no other man in the world did. She thought of stuffing rabbits with forcemeat or rosemary. She lay there. She shook as if with cold. His hands moved like a pickpocket's, gliding, seeking. Finally, he shut her legs, wiped his hands, and helped her to ease herself up into a sitting position. Biggie! Oh my goodness! Oh my... Okay, my apologies. No doubt you have heard by now the frantic running around and snuffling of my cats. Um, normally, I close them out of the bedroom while I record, but today, since I had closed the bedroom during the day while I was at work to keep my cats from looking out directly at to the directly to the eclipse, because that is the one window in my apartment where they would be able to directly see it, and I didn't want them to inadvertently get blinded. Um, so I've left the door open so that they would have free reign to like run around. And no doubt you have heard them jumping around, uh, jumping on and off the bed. And Biggie Mo just came just now and just like huffed into the microphone as I was holding it there. Um, so my apologies. Um, and I will continue with the story. Oh my goodness. She lay there. She shook as if with cold. His hands moved like a pickpocket's, gliding, seeking. Finally, he shut her legs, wiped his hands, and helped her to ease herself up into a sitting position. Her back ached. She smoothed the nightgown over her knees, observing the creases. Miss F., do you ever suffer from maniacal fits? He asked thoughtfully, letting go of her arm. No, sir, she said, startled. Have you any other symptoms you care to mention to me? He fixed her with an intense look now, though she couldn't tell why. She gave him what she hoped was a brave smile and straightened a little where she sat on the edge of the leather table. No, Mr. Baker Brown, really, my back is all that troubles me, she said, laying her hand quite high up on the left. The pain generally begins just here. Have you any, um, pernicious habits? It was the first time he had hesitated in asking a question. 
No, God forbid, she said, except for a sup of fortified wine. At Christmas, she added hastily. A flash of what looked like irritation crossed Mr. Baker Brown's pink forehead. What I meant to ask, Miss F., is whether you have ever in your life touched yourself. In an improper way, I mean. She stared at him. In a way that only a physician should touch you, or a husband, if you had a husband. Her cheeks were scorching. I don't... I don't know what you mean, doctor. I mean, sir. Never mind, he said lightly, and glanced at his notes again. She had the feeling he was not pleased with her answer. Would you say that you feel languid, debilitated, not so lively as when you were younger? I suppose so, because of my back. She spoke mechanically. Her heart was still thudding. Can you compose your mind sufficiently to write a letter? He asked. Oh, I would, she told him, relaxing a little, if I only had the time. When I'm not resting, I have to see to my brother's dinner and his collars and cuffs, and I'm slow because of my back, as I said. The pain comes on so sudden. Are you ever sleepless? He broke in. Or do you wake in the middle of the night? Only if my back is bad, she said, aware that she was repeating herself. Unaccountable fits of depression? Well, not really, she tried to think. Only a sort of lost feeling once in a while when I consider my future. Attacks of melancholy with it, without any tangible reason, he said encouragingly. After a moment, she shook her head. If I'm ever low in spirits, sir, it's for a reason. He put something down in his notebook. She wished she could have had a look at it. She thought perhaps if she could tell this doctor all her reasons, all the real and unreal worries that ever lowered her spirits, she would then be able to shake them off. If this gentleman with the broad shoulders under the smooth black jacket were to write down all her troubles, she might stand up in the end, pain-free, released. The patient becomes restless and excited, or melancholy and retiring, listless and indifferent to the social influences of domestic life. Baker Brown snapped the notebook shut and screwed the lid onto his pen. Miss F., he began in the voice of one announcing good news. Forget your back. She looked at him and trembled with shock. Forget her back? After two years of nagging, stabbing pain? After two years of being accused of malingering? Don't you believe me neither? She asked, forgetting her grammar. Of course I do. Your pain is real, he said, bending towards her, and his eyes were earnest. But what you are suffering from is a profound disease that affects your whole body and mind, not just your back. You are a victim of a loss of nerve power. Nerve power? She repeated the unfamiliar phrase. It is brought on by peripheral irritation. It is all too common among women of every position in life. But, but why? Mr. Baker Brown shook his head sympathetically. You know from your own experience that the female body is an exquisitely sensitive mechanism. This loss of nerve power, this hysteria, she flinched from the word, he put his warm hand over hers. I don't use the word in the layman sense of female delusions. Hysteria is all too real a disease. You are a respectable young woman who has fallen victim to a terrible but curable disease. Curable? she repeated. Yes, indeed. By means of a revolutionary new treatment that I first pioneered in this very clinic two years ago, 
Recently, I treated a working woman like yourself, a dressmaker from Yorkshire, who had been so ill with paralysis of the arms as to render her unable to do any work for five years. And what happened? asked Miss F., knowing the answer. His face shone like a preacher's. Two months after she entered this clinic, she left it, restored to health. No. She has never had a day's illness since, he said, marking off each syllable with his finger. Her head was whirling. Could it be true? And and what is this miraculous treatment? Mr. Baker Brown smiled, almost shyly. My dear Miss F., I doubt your education, though clearly not negligible, has been such that you would understand the technical terms. Of course not, she said, mortified. But what I can assure you is that under my personal care, you will soon become a happy and useful member of society and the sister your brother deserves. You can cure me? She asked like a child needing to hear it again and again. Trust me, he said softly. Often a great disposition for novelties is exhibited, the patient desiring to escape from home. She will be fanciful in her food, sometimes express even a distaste for it, and apparently, as her friends will say, live upon nothing. She didn't want any dinner that first afternoon. All she asked for was a cup of tea. It was bliss to lie in the snowy white bed and be exempt from all responsibilities. She fancied her back felt a little better already. She had a moment's guilt when she thought of what all this was costing her brother, and another when she wondered who would wash his collars and cuffs for next week. But then she put all that out of her mind. As Matra kept saying, what you need is quiet. There was a curtain hanging round her bed. It reduced her world to a pure rectangle. Behind her curtain, several paces away behind their own curtains, lay other women, she knew, but she had no idea of their names. Matron called them all Miss or Ma'am. In the next room was someone called someone Matron spoke of to a nurse as her ladyship. <laughs> Imagine that. Mr. Baker Brown advised against conversation between the patients, according to Matron. When they gossiped, they only increased each other's anxieties. Quiet. That's what Miss F. needed, what all the intricate bones and muscles of her back needed, what her whole body and mind had needed for years. Nerve power. She thought of it bubbling up in her like hot punch. Was this absolute rest the treatment, she wondered? Was the miracle as simple as that? Her empty stomach gurgled. She felt light as air. Later, the lights were extinguished. In the fragrant dark, Miss F. rolled over onto her front to ease her stiffness. She was tired, but not sleepy. The hard mattress pressed against her chin, her ribs, her knees. She thought of that strange thing the doctor had said about touching herself, the question he had put to her after the examination. She thought of the examination. She moved, but only a little, back and forth against the mattress, as if rocking herself to sleep, so infinitesimally that someone looking in through a gap in the curtain would have noticed nothing. She thought of the doctor's hands. Mr. Baker Brown visited Miss F. twice on the first morning she woke up in the ward, and twice again on the second day. He asked her about her memories of when she was a girl, and wrote down all her answers. She had never felt so interesting. On the third day, Matron woke her very early for a warm bath. "'Is this part of the treatment?' Miss F. asked eagerly, rubbing the small of her back to loosen the night's stiffness. A brief nod from Matron. "'It clears the portal circulation.' What's that? 
Nothing you need worry about. Miss F lay back in the enormous bath and let the water ease her aching spine. Afterwards, Matron helped her onto a trolley and wheeled her through the corridors. The wheels squealed. In her torpid sp state, Miss F heard voices leak from rooms as she rolled past them. She thought she was being moved to another ward, one closer to Mr. Baker Brown's own office, perhaps, so he could keep an eye on her state of health per himself from hour to hour. Perhaps he would lay his hands on her back to feel if the healing had begun. She had no objection. She had no objection to anything. There he was, the doctor himself, broad and magnificent in his black jacket. He was pouring something onto a pad of gauze, perhaps some kind of ointment. Miss F. smiled up at him from the trolley. "'Are we ready?' he asked her, and she opened her mouth to answer, to tell him that she had always been ready, that she had been waiting for him her whole life. He brought the pad down over her nose. The patient having been placed completely under the influence of chloroform, the clitoris is freely excised either by scissors or knife. I always prefer the scissors. In her dream, she was walking up the aisle on her brother's arm. Mr. Baker Brown stood facing the altar, looking straight ahead, but she could tell by the set of his shoulders that it was her he was waiting for. She turned to smile at her brother, but found that he'd put on his policeman's uniform for some reason, and he was angry with the doctor, and he was pulling his long leather truncheon out of its loop. She tried to get between the two men. She felt the truncheon come down and smash her head into pieces. In her dream, she woke and went to lift the vast kettle of syrup off the fire. As she set it down, she lost her balance and slipped in head first. Through the burning, she could taste the sweetness. Her screams made no sound. In her dream, she woke and found herself walking through London to her old house, where she was cook, because she knew she'd lost something. She'd left it behind her, whatever it was. She must have tucked it under her mattress or hidden it under a floorboard. But when at last she got to the right house, instead of going up and knocking on the door, she found herself walking right past. Her legs wouldn't take her up the steps. They wouldn't take her where she needed to go. She looked down, and she had no legs, no body at all. She was a ghost. This time she really did wake. Someone held a tube to her lips and she sucked and it was cool water. What? croaked Miss F at last. What's happened to me? You've been in a delirium, said Matron professionally. It's the opium. It's usual after an operation. What operation? You'll be all right now. The time required for recovery must depend not only, as has already been hinted, on the duration of illness, but also on the peculiar temperament of the patient. Miss F. was kept in a small private room, far from the others. There was a nurse hemming sheets beside her bed every minute of the day. "'Why won't you answer my questions?' she begged. "'I'm not here to tell you nothing, miss,' repeated the nurse. "'I'm only here to make sure you don't touch that bandage again. "'I just wanted to see. I don't know what's happened to me. "'I never bled like that before in my life.' "'That's because you touched the bandage,' said the nurse. "'Miss F. was prescribed bread and milk, strict quiet, and no visitors. "'She had olive oil rubbed into her chest for strengthening. "'When she tried to look under the bandage again, "'her hands were pulled back and tied to the bed.' She couldn't stop weeping. Something must have gone wrong. It couldn't have done, said Matron sternly. Mr. Baker Brown is a most celebrated surgeon throughout the empire. Then what has he done to me? No answer. 
Why won't he see me? One morning, Miss F. woke up alone. The bandage had been taken off and her hands were untied. She did touch herself then, slowly and deliberately, for the first time. She learned her new shape. There was no pain down there. There was nothing at all. The next morning when she woke from her drugged sleep, Mr. Baker Brown was there. She thought at first he was only another hallucination. She lay looking up at him, his smooth, unworried forehead. Then she flung herself at him. But her nails must have been cut short while she was asleep, she realized, because she didn't minute manage to leave so much as a scratch on his face, only a slight pink mark under one eye, as if the doctor had brushed against some rouged lady at a ball. She lay flat, feeling a tide of pain surge up and down her spine. He held her hands flat against the mattress, gently, as if she were a child, and called in matron to tie them down again. "'Why have you mutilated me?' Miss F. howled. "'I have done nothing of the sort,' said the doctor. His eyes were full of hurt. "'I have performed an operation to prevent you from harming yourself, from making yourself gravely ill to the point of epilepsy, lunacy, and death.' She stared at him, her eyes throbbing. "'An operation, I might add, which has earned me the admiration of my peers "'and material success, as well as the gratitude of countless women and their families. "'I want my brother,' she said. "'The strictest quiet must be enjoined, "'and the attention of relatives, if possible, avoided, "'so that the moral influence of medical attendant and nurse "'may be uninterruptedly maintained.' "'For six days she was quite alone.' She lay on her pillows as limp as an old dress. Sometimes she lay on her side, either the right or the left. It didn't matter. On the seventh day, Mr. Baker Brown came in to look at her again. "'My dear Miss F., you strike me as rather better. Your skin, your circulation, matron reports an improvement in your, in your digestion. My back hurts,' she said, her eyes following him around the tiny room." My back hurts as much as it ever did. He shook his head at her, almost playfully. You sleep well these nights, you eat, he coaxed her. Why won't you admit to being a little better? Because I'm not, she said through her teeth. I demand to be let go. I want to go home to my brother's house. Come now, Miss F., you must know that's impossible. Matron has told you I never discharge a patient till she is fully cured, not just cured in body, but in mind. Her eyes locked onto his. Why don't you do a little knitting, he suggested, or try to walk to the window and back. She cleared her throat. How can you bear what you do? He spoke with forced calm. Miss F., I must tell you frankly that I believe I have rendered you more truly feminine, more healthy in your natural instincts, more prepared to discover real happiness in marital intercourse, if marriage is to be your lot in life, and why should it not now? He meant every word he said. She could see that in his burning eyes. That was the worst thing. That was the pity of it, it struck her now, that he believed absolutely in his mission. I'm going to tell my brother what you've done to me, she said levelly. A cautious look came over Mr. Baker Brown now. I think not. These are delicate matters, he advised her. I have found, in other cases, that the relatives and friends of my patients do not care to pry into the details of treatment, either before or after. 
When my brother hears my back is no better after all he spent, the doctor spread his hands. He understood from the start that I could make no guarantees about any particular symptom. She lay watching him. The minute you let me see him, I'll tell him just what you've done to me. I very much doubt that, said Baker Brown mildly. She stared. For a woman of your pretensions to modesty and respectability, Miss F., to attempt to convey such intimate information to a young man, her own brother, who would be mortified, I imagine, who would cover his ears at such shamelessness in a sister, or run out of the room, what words would you use to make your complaint, may I ask? He waited. I would tell him, she growled at last. Yes? She imagined the conversation. Her brother's face, all the words that came into her head appalled her. I would tell him that part of me has been damaged, stolen. He could have you charged with assault. I'm afraid he would not understand which part you mean. He is not a man of much education. A pause. How would you describe the part to him, Miss F? Another moment went by. Would you point, perhaps? She tried to gather her spit, but her mouth was too dry. "'My dear girl, we really mustn't quarrel,' said the doctor, sitting on the edge of her bed. "'At this early stage of convalescence, such confusion, such delusions of having been harmed, are not uncommon among my patients. But let me assure you that every note I have written down over the years, every piece of evidence I have gathered with the full force of scientific rigor, proves that my operation works.' His voice was evangelical again. There were tiny beads of sweat along his hairline. I swear to you, Miss F., I have seen women who were morally degraded, monsters of sensuality, until my operation transformed them. Women have come to this clinic in a state of desperation, complaining of pain in one organ or limb or another, or even in a state of rage, talking of divorces, and afterwards I send them home restored to take up their rightful places by their husband's sides. There are many countries in the Empire, Miss F., where a primitive form of my operation is done on every girl at the age of puberty to ward off the disease of self-irritation before it has a chance to take hold. Why, some might say, this time, she did manage to spit. Mr. Baker Brown took out a white handkerchief and wiped his chin. The day will come when you will get down on your knees to thank me, he said shakily. She looked at this man, into whose hands she had entrusted herself, and knew all at once that he was not the beloved savior she had been looking for, nor an omnipotent demon either, only a man, a middle-aged man. A month is generally required for perfect healing of the wound, at the end of which time it is difficult for the uninformed or non-medical to discover any trace of an operation. Three weeks after the surgery, Miss F. got out of bed. She stood straight, testing her balance, shouldering the old pain. Her back felt much the same, but she was changed in more than one way. She knew what she had to do. I understand from Matron that you feel quite well today, Mr. Bra Mr. Baker Brown asked, marching in. Yes, sir, she said levelly. Have you lost all your old symptoms? I have. How are you sleeping? Well. How is your appetite? Good. How are your spirits? Good. 
He looked up from his notebook. Your manner is still not a cheerful one. It never was. He checked his notes again. Can you defecate without the slightest uneasiness? I can. She waited till he had finished writing. She knew it was over. And doctor? Sir? She added, stony-faced. He glanced up, his eyes wary. I'm cured of all my delusions. He stared back at her. He blinked once, twice. Matron? He called. Bring in Miss F.'s street clothes. January 31st. Discharged from the home. Cured. A note from the author. Cured is based on Isaac Baker Brown's brief notes on the case of P.F. in his On the Curability of Certain Forms of Insanity, Epilepsy, Catalepsy, and Hysteria in Females, 1866. And some of the passages in this story are from that controversial bestseller. Famous as one of the most skillful surgeons in England, Baker Brown began performing clitoridectomies on women and on girls as young as 10 years old in 1859. His enemies accused him of destroying women's reputations and leaving them frigid by performing a pointless operation without the full knowledge of patients or their families. In 1867, as a result of publishing his book, Baker Brown was expelled from the obstetrics obstetrical, oh my goodness, I'm sorry, obstetrical society and had to resign from his private clinic, the London Home for Surgical Diseases of Women. I have drawn on Ornella Mosuki's excellent essay, Clitoridectomy, Circumcision, and the Politics of Sexual Pleasure in Mid-Victorian Britain in Sexualities in Victorian Britain, edited by Andrew H. Miller and James Eli Adams, 1996. Clitoridectomy never became very well established in British medical practice, soon being replaced by the more fashionable ovioratomy operation, which also had been pioneered by Baker Brown in the 1850s. But in America, clitoridectomy was widely performed until the early 20th century. These days, about 2,000 female babies a year in the United States undergo surgery to correct clitoromegaly, which means being born with a clitoris that a doctor thinks looks too big. Um, if you have ever heard of Eve Ensler of the Vagina Monologues fame, she started a movement in which every year on February 14th, groups perform the Vagina Monologues to raise money for local women's shelters, but also to contribute to the end of the practice of clitoridectomy in Africa. Um, I will put a link in the show notes for that as well. Thank you once more for listening to Blue Stocking. I apologize for all of the mishaps and bloopers this week. Hopefully you will find them more entertaining than annoying. If you have questions or suggestions, please feel free to email bluestockingpod at gmail.com. And I look forward to sharing more information with you in our next episode. Thank you for listening.